Welcome to Raising Up Cops, a podcast about raising Coptic kids in Western culture, hosted by me, Madonna Lewindi, and Laura Michael. Hey, Madonna. So this week, we are continuing our conversation from last week about life with children with disabilities, and we have a few awesome interviews to share with you. So first up, we have who has a daughter on the autism spectrum, and she's going to share just a little bit about the blessings and the struggles and how we as a community can be helpful in the situations. So let's just start by taking a listen to her interview with Laura. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for agreeing to be uh, on this interview. Thank you for having me. I know that you have a six-year-old daughter who is on the autism spectrum. Can you tell us a little bit about when the diagnosis came and like an idea of the early part of the journey? How long have you known and that sort of thing? My daughter was uh, delayed in many of her milestones. And early on, around the age of two, my sister, who's a physician, recognized some of the early signs that completely went over my head. And she's the one who suggested that we should get her tested. And I thank God that she took the courage to tell us that because I imagine that's not an easy thing to suggest to someone else, that there may be something potentially wrong with their child. so thank God that she she told us and we went and got her tested. The testing process is not the funnest. Um, it takes a long time. <laughs> it's very behavioral. Um, they basically put the child in a, uh, a specific environment depending on the age. My daughter at the time was two years old. And uh, they so they give her age appropriate toys. And basically asked her to play with them and just watch to see her her behavior. Um, if she had any eye contact with us as her parents or with the instructor or the leader of the, the study and things like that. Uh, and there were, there were several surveys that we had to fill out um, regarding the pregnancy and her birth and other uh, developmental stages that she went through up until that point. After her the test, the, um, they sit down with you and tell you, um, so this is our diagnosis based on this, that, and the other. Um, she meets this criteria. She's on this end for, for autism. She's on this end of the spectrum and steps moving forward. So for her, uh, they suggested doing ABA therapy, uh, applied behavioral therapy, essentially. Um, it works with, they work with the child to work past certain like impediments, even even things as small as learning how to isolate her pointer finger and learning how to point. Um, they they have fun ways of doing that with the child and they turn it into a game. We're on the autism spectrum. Someone was just telling me there are 32 types or something. Wow, yeah. I, have no, I, you know, I know we call it a spectrum, but I never pictured 32. Like, so where yeah. are we talking verbal, nonverbal? Like, where are we? They classify it based on specific, oh, I forget what it's called landmarks, I think. So she is verbal. She's high functioning. She was diagnosed on the moderate to severe end, but that was because of a, um, a social aspect where she did not connect socially. She didn't respond to her name. She didn't, um, when she was playing, typical children will play. And if they're enjoying something or they laugh, they will look up at their loved one, their mom or dad or sister or brother. But a child with autism does not always do that. And my daughter did not do that. She's so, like severe to moderate, but because of specific symptoms that she has. But in school, is she in a separate class, in a collaborative class, or in the general population? 
she's in a collaborative class where they have mixed both typical children and children with special needs, but she has an aide specifically assigned to her to help her stay on task and so on. Yeah, I was a teacher in a collab class and we had a wonderful student on the spectrum who had an aide. The aide was like our our best friend because the aide yes. knew everything. The aide was the expert on everything about this child. <laughs> yeah, they're they're amazing and they they help us with help like how to help her with homework at home and things like that. So it's they're they're awesome. Thank God for them. <laughs> So we were saying that before we started recording that this is your first child. So you had nothing to compare to really. So if it wasn't for your sister, I think it probably would have been hard to even, I mean, tell me, like, did you have an inkling before? I didn't, I didn't, I didn't even know to look for it. So I, yeah, I had no idea. If it wasn't for my sister, I would have never known. And it would have been, I feel like we would not have been able to get in the the therapy as intensively and early as we could have as or as we did if it was left up to my knowledge. <laughs> so I'm thank God. I'm so thankful that she told us. So I thought it was really interesting that if her sister hadn't spoken up Madonna, she would not have known what even to look for. Yeah, I was going to say that was one of the things that struck me right away was, you know, when you have your own kid, it's really hard to, especially when you don't have anything to compare it to. First kid, how do you know what is within the realm of normal, what's not? And uh, so definitely it's such a blessing that her sister was there and could point things out to them. But it sounds like the testing process is long and obviously not something exciting, you know, but um, I'm glad that she was able to to do that and move forward and get a diagnosis because then they got to move on to the helping step. How do we help our daughter now that we know this diagnosis? And I think it really shows us how, how much parents do need more support in the early years. I think if we, you know, if there was some kind of guide of like, you know, three warning signs to look for or something along those lines, or at least just make sure you go to your early pediatrics appointments and give your, your pediatrician time to interact with your child and to um, God willing, pick up on some of those uh, those characteristics or those behaviors. But one thing that I really appreciated about her, Laura, is that she heard something maybe wrong, and it did, doesn't sound like she got defensive. Doesn't sound like she was, you know, avoidant. She didn't do any of that. She didn't take it personally. She said, "Someone who loves my child is concerned. I should probably look into it better safe than sorry." And she went forward with it because. It's all, I mean, like even, you know, in our classrooms, Laura, you and I have been teachers. We've had those conversations with parents and it's tough. And the the hardest ones are the parents that say, there's nothing wrong with my child. You just don't know how to deal with them or something like that. Um, So definitely, if you hear somebody is concerned, it's not, do not take it personally. Just look into it for sure. The school is, is there to help you. They want your child to do the best. They want your child to succeed. Uh, keep that in mind. So we were talking to a school psychologist and she was describing, you know, I asked her what it's like for parents who are fresh off a diagnosis and she was describing it like grief. Did you feel a kind of grief? Yes. Oh my goodness. Yes. The five stages of grief are real, especially in this situation. Like at first it's like, it's truly disbelief. Like, like you can't believe that this is happening. Um, and then you slowly like come to accept it or like, well, that's obviously at the end, but like when you start to recognize you're like, this is it, this is our reality and we have to deal with it. 
you start to become sad and you start to become angry and you start it's you, and then you reach a point of indifference <laughs> just like I don't I don't you know like you lose hope almost um thank god that you know you that's a very brief period but because you're kind of forced to reckon with the situation and you have to move forward and how how can I help what can I do now and that's fi the final stage of acceptance but the I don't I mean it was it was truly truly a, a form of grief because you're letting go of those dreams you had for your child and grieving that loss of that hope and expectation for your child to grow up typically and live a typical life but then you realize or I can't say you I realize like with the help of therapy, that there is still hope. There's, they can live a very close to typical life and have friends and, you know, be able to take care of themselves as adults and, and so on. So it's, yeah, it was definitely a, a period of grief for sure. <laughs> I felt like I could feel in her voice just how this was a blow to her. You know, we've talked about this, I feel like on every episode, that is, you know, we have expectations for our children. We think we know what it's going to look like. I think we all kind of go through that period where we realize maybe our kids are not going to be the way that we expected them to be. And so if anything, this feels like a lesson to all of us that, you know, when we go on this journey of having children, that we are to really, we have to put it into the hands of God because our failed expectations really cause us more grief than, than good at this point. You know, we, we have all these ideas and when they don't, even if it's not something serious, even if it's not something life-changing, like I'm sure autism was definitely life-changing, but even in other situations, it tends to derail us when it maybe doesn't need to, I don't know. It was hard on her. And I'm sure that for all parents going through that period of all parents with children with disabilities, specifically going through that period of just recognizing that the images you had put or the vision you had laid out, the track you had laid out, uh, it, it isn't going to go exactly the way you thought. I love what you said, Madonna, that, you know, our children are, they're the children of God. So he's got the plan and his plan and his vision actually is going to be executed no matter what what preconceived notions we, we bring to the parenting table. So, but you know, I, I see this, I see a parallel here with um, Donna from last week with her son, Chris, and when she accepted who he was and what life was going to look like, she opened herself to loving him fully. She opened herself to helping him and to seeking to making him more than the doctors predicted. And I think you can like, even though you sense the, the, the loss in her voice from the diagnosis, you also sense this tremendous amount of love and hopefulness that like, hey, you know what, like, it was hard, it was hard, and it was unexpected to hear this. But now we're here. And now we're moving forward. And now I am talking to the school aide, and I am talking to the behavioral therapist, and I'm learning so much about all the things that my child can do. And her daughter is only six. So she I mean, there's still like a long road ahead. And there's a lot that she's going to discover about her child in positive ways, I'm sure. So we, we were talking a little bit about with a child with a disability, there come blessings and there come struggles. Let's, let's start with the struggles. What is, what is this, like, what's daily life like? What is a regular struggle, something that you struggle with? For my daughter's case specifically, because it manifests differently in each child, the struggle is huge with focus and keeping her on a specific task or completing a task or remembering the steps to a task. 
focus is is a big one with with her and another one is trying to get her to perceive the importance of what we're doing it's hard to teach children in general why school is important and it's that much more harder for to teach a child on the spectrum the importance of what they're doing like writing is hard why do i need writing or but planning is hard why do i need to plan you know i could just do it right so things like that what about navigating the school system did you have any struggles with that or is there any advice you could give parents for how to you know get through the school part of it i would say you are your child's advocate and if you believe your child needs a specific like extra help in some form advocate for that because the school system has thousands of other children they're dealing with and you don't want your child to get lost in all of that so you have to speak up and say so in our case for our daughter um she was originally in a special needs preschool when it came time to put her into kindergarten we were lucky enough that the the administrators who were involved in her case said that they would put her in a uh, combined class okay but i was fully prepared <laughs> to be like listen i think she's ready to be in this type of class so that she can learn from the typical children i i know friends who have had to do that that's really the only advice that i could give is that you are your child's advocate you know your child best and you can be the instigator of change where you can even introduce the idea of combined classes where there may be none and so on one of the things that um really makes it tough again is you know she said it the school system has so many children in it um and i can't imagine having to be on that side of the process and trying to fight for your child and and you really have to know a lot more about stuff that you probably didn't plan to know about uh how the school system works how teaching works how um you know behavioral aids in the in the classroom work and having inclusive classrooms can be um a blessing and it can be a struggle because obviously there's an interaction there between your child with a disability and the other children who um are are typical and they have uh you know pretty predictable life ahead of them and the interactions between them have to be studied and you have to be really involved with your child with a disability in the school system i'm sure she probably went through tons of meetings and it's going to be like that for a while Yeah, I thought that it was wonderful what she said that she went into that uh the conversation with the preschool about what recommendation what school she would go into or what classes she would go into for kindergarten and she was she went in armed and ready for a fight like if I need to push for her to be in a collaborative class like I, okay, I'm ready. And thank God she had the blessing of not having to um fight that. Not having to do that fight. Yeah. And actually Donna from last week her uh her other son had been um the school had decided he was on the autism spectrum and Donna actually went in and fought to get him out because she knew he was not on the spectrum because actually the person who told me that there are 32 types of autism was Donna because she did her research so that just tells you how much you you are your child's advocate uh don't deny help that is you know don't be delusional if your child needs help get that help But if your child needs something different, get what your child actually needs. Um you are the parent. Yeah, for sure you're you're going to know your child's ability in and out more than any person that's going to spend a couple of hours a day with them. 
Um, and so I do appreciate that you said, like she, she was armed and ready. She had her information going in. She knew what she was going to say. Thankfully, she didn't have to use it. But this is definitely going to be something that she's going to have to be prepared for. And other children, other parents with children with disabilities will tell you, um, there's a lot of resources out there for people with disabilities, but a lot of times accommodations are ignored or people are not aware of the accommodations that are needed. So if you're not going to speak up for your child, if you're not going to do your research, um, you'll find that they will fly under the radar in a lot of ways. What about the blessings of this life? What are some things, you know, I, I don't want to like push you into any kind of stereotype. So you tell me, but like, what are, (laughs) what are the blessings of this life after all? That, oh my gosh, there's so many, I don't even know where to start. So it's, it's, they are truly angels. Like I really stand by that word with, with children with special needs because they, for my daughter and for several cases that I know, they are so loving, so full of love more than more so, or it shows more than a typical child. They have such a pure desire to make their families happy. And they have such a pure desire to make everyone around them happy, even their teachers. And they, they just want to see joy and feel love. And um, they are very attuned to that. Like if, if they sense someone who may not understand them or feel, you know, anxious around them. Again, I can only speak in the example of my daughter and the ones that I know um, around me that they actually help break those walls down by showing even more love. And they are such a good example of what it means to, you know, become as one of these children <laughs> in order to be able to enter the kingdom. Like it's, it's so clear on them. Another blessing is that because of that love, because of that innocence that they have, it teaches me as a parent to be more patient, to be more understanding of my child's point of view. Am I always like that? No, I'm human. I'm, I'm a parent. I get frustrated. I, you know, I raise my voice. I'm normal, <laughs> even with my non-typical child. But does that, does that mean the lesson is lost? No, I look back and I recognize this is her autism playing into the situation, but I need to remember that and bring that to mind. And the importance of remembering somebody else's struggle to be able to interact with them better, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, Yeah, that's just a couple. (laughs) So I really appreciated so much about these children with special needs being very loving, even more than typical children. And especially for children with autism, I think we, or maybe I in the past, have assumed that the lack of social uh, markers or social behaviors, the lack of eye contact or Um, any of the other things that are so stereotypical of children with autism, I have assumed that that meant that they don't want our love or don't want our attention, that it's um, a deliberate way of pushing us away. And to hear the opposite, that these behaviors are things that are outside of their control, that are part of their syndrome, um, but at the same time, they need love just as much or more uh, as other children do. That is something uh, you, you touched exactly on the point that I was thinking, Laura, that I definitely am surprised by that. I'm definitely, there's something new that I learned because um, when I pictured autism, the way that it's presented, the way that I hear about it is, you know, they avoid advances of love because it's not, um, I don't know if it's not comfortable or uh, I don't know all the ins and outs of 
why they uh, need or don't need that. But I always saw it as it was a parent struggle. Like I want to be able to love my child in this way, but they don't want to accept it. But it turns out you just have to figure out the way in which to show and express that same amount and desire for love for that child. It does not, it is not less. It just looks different. Um, and that's definitely something new that I, I did not know before. So I appreciate her bringing that up and teaching us about that. So I think you're kind of in a unique position, you know, as the wife of a priest to give us the advice for churches, how in the wider church community, we can approach and befriend and be more welcoming and really fully embrace children with disabilities and families with children with disabilities. What kind of advice do you have for us? I would say, don't be afraid to approach. Don't allow the difference to create a wall. Allow it to be an opportunity for you to go closer to them. And if your children are curious and have questions, answer them in a loving way where you can tell them, oh, well, so-and-so is a little bit different, but let's go make friends. You know, let's go be friends with them. Let's go ask them, why are you in a wheelchair? For example, if somebody with who is in a wheelchair or ask the mom if the child is nonverbal, ask the mom, if, like, is, is there anything I can do to help? Offer love in the form of service and in the form of friendship in order to make them feel like they are not outcast from the community. For us to be able to do that, we need to um, recognize that these parents, these families struggle probably a little bit more than most families because of this difference, whatever the difference may be. The, for the parents, offer more help. Um, you see them struggling with their child that who may be throwing a tantrum, you know, non-typical children throw tantrums just like typical children. And it may even extend into the older ages. Offer help, offer, be careful in how you do so though, so that it doesn't come across as condescending. But if they're carrying another child, offer to carry that child so they can focus on the, ch the child that needs attention right now. Um, these Obviously these are just very minor general examples, but it's important for us to show them that we are there to support them because they need that support and they don't need to feel like there's something wrong with them because their child, God chose for their child to be different. That was, that was not their choice. Um, I, don't, I don't know of any parent that asks for this. And so they were given this by God and his wisdom. And it was, it's a, a lesson for all of us to learn to show love in whatever way that is best for each person. It sounds to me like you're describing small repeated things over time, not some sort of grand gesture. Does that sound accurate? Yes. Like yes. just take one of my kids for just yeah. a few minutes. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> it's not like, it's not something beyond the abilities of people to help you, no. right? No, no, not at all, actually. If you can, you can help take care of the, the, the other kids if they have only one child with special needs and so that they can focus their attention on that child. Those children need more attention than a typical child. The siblings feel that, which is a whole different story altogether, but they need that attention. The parent needs to give that attention. So help them with the others so that they are able to get through this and can all get back to normal <laughs> or whatever is normal for each family. <laughs> So again, I'm seeing a lot of similarities in this interview uh, as the one with Donna, 
even though the disabilities are on opposite spectrums. You've got one that, you know, is on the autism spectrum and one that is completely, um, but she's, oh, sorry, but the autism spectrum, she's still verbal, she's high functioning, she just, it's the social aspect. And then you had Chris from last week who is completely nonverbal, who needed pretty much uh, care from head to toe, right? Physically, um, emotionally, everything. And yet the same words are being spoken. If your child happens to notice that my child is different, let your child come and be friends. If they ask questions, answer them, but with the tone of, yeah, like they're a little different, but they still want to be friends. Um, and I, I, I hear that lesson over and over again. It doesn't matter what situation our kids are in or you know, uh, if there's a disability or if there's not, there is one thing that we all desire for our kids and that is that they are loved and that they are accepted and that they are cherished for who they are, no matter what that looks like. Um, and then one other thing that she said that I really appreciated was for the, for the parents, offer love to the parent in the form of service and friendship. Again, something else that Donna said. So I, anybody who's been in church with a young child who starts screaming in the middle of liturgy or whatever, and you feel those eyes looking at you. It is isolating. It is embarrassing. It is, it's not nice. It's not a nice feeling at all. And mothers will often complain that that's something that uh, they really dislike, you know? However, when somebody comes and offers kind words or they offer help and you can tell it's from a good place in their heart with good intentions, it is quite literally a sigh of relief. It is the help that we all need. It's still the same outcome. We want to feel seen. We want to feel helped. And we want to feel like people still are going to uh, be our friends and offer service to us. Like we would, you know, want to offer to other people. And I think you brought that up in last week as well, just the tone of voice and what a big difference it makes. So, you know, it's amazing how much we are so worried about offending that we won't approach it all. We won't ask any questions as if that's the only other option. Either you're offensive and you say, hey, what's wrong with this kid? Or you just pretend they don't exist, which honestly is offensive. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so seeing that, no, there is a third option. We can go up to the parents and say, what's going on? And is there a way I can help? And um, tell me more about this person's situation, your child's situation. Is it okay if I say hi? You know, just small, gentle gestures that are born out of love that come from a pure heart and not from any kind of weird desire to, I don't know, just get in other people's business. There's a difference, you know, in the way you do that. For sure. And I think one of the things that you can do to mitigate that fear for yourself is, you know, say a little prayer before walking over saying, God, like, whatever I'm about to say to this person, I'm please let them receive it knowing that I am coming from a good place. I am not judging, um, open their hearts to feel like they can ask me and not feel like I am, I'm being judgmental or I feel like they don't have control. So therefore I need to step in. It is simply because I see there's a need and I would love to offer my help. I think saying that prayer will go a long way in and of itself. And also checking your own heart about it. Just saying, you know, God, like, um, I want to go to this person, but please let it be from a place of, of love, like you would have done. A place of respect, not a place of I know better or um, I can do what they can't. How old is your next child down? He's four. Four. Okay, that's, a, that's perfect. So 
tell us a little bit about how your four-year-old relates to his big sister. He looks up to her. He loves her. He wants to play with her all the time. I think he's learned or is learning that there are some, we call them moods, but I really don't know what else to call them, that sometimes the oldest doesn't feel like playing. He doesn't feel like he he can play with her because she's she's like shut down. She's hidden inside of herself, for lack of a better word and term, she, that she's not willing to play right now. She doesn't want to. She doesn't feel that connection with him or she's, many times she'll ignore altogether. He's learning to recognize these instances, um, even though she's come a far away from where we started, that, okay, now is not a time I can play with my sister. And for a while, we were worried that he would pick up some of these behaviors, but thankfully, uh, he developed typically. Do you feel like he knows yet that there's a difference in his sister, or he's still too young? I, th I don't think so. I don't think he, he's able to pick up on it yet. So I have to say, throughout the time I was listening, you know, doing the interview, I was thinking about this Korean drama called It's Okay Not to Be Okay. And in it, one of the characters, one of the actors plays a, um, a person with autism. He's a full-grown man, and he has a younger brother who helps take care of him. And when she was describing what her, how her four-year-old right now deals with his six-year-old sister is exactly paralleled in scenes from this show because the older brother has a tent that he goes into when he doesn't want to speak to his brother and he doesn't want to deal with anyone. And the younger brother knows to respect his time in the tent. And when the brother wants to come out or feels okay and is willing to open up again, the younger brother is there waiting for him and uh, able to like re-engage re again. And the fact that by four years old, he, he already knows this is the time that sister needs her own time. He understands her boundary. Uh, and to think that this, I mean, when I was watching the drama, I was like, oh, what do these people know? But what she was describing, I was like, wow, they really did their research before they, they put this character together. Um, it's amazing how, how fast we can learn each other's boundaries when they're firm. <laughs> I, I was going to say, like, the amount of nuance a four-year-old has to, has to catch up to and to, you know, latch on to to understand when... I can talk when I can't talk, when I can approach, when I can't approach. Uh, there are several adults who haven't, uh, who haven't mastered that kind of boundary. They have not mastered, like I cannot reach, read somebody's social cues and understand this is not the time for me to bring up a topic right now, you know? Um, so it's really impressive that he has picked up on that. And again, once again, you know, kids are capable of a lot more than we give them credit for. Um, you know, if we can, I don't want to say treat them like adults, but we can expect more from them in terms of, of what they can and can't do. And so I really, I'm really loving hearing her talk about that. Man, four years old, that's tough, but it's good. <laughs> Is there anything else you feel like we haven't covered or people don't ask that they should be asking? It's, it's, it's hard. There's, there's a lot to cover in this topic. Yeah, um, for sure. Really what the parents, what the parents go through is a lot especially in our community where it's not something that's well recognized or, or well understood for that matter. I would say that to the, to the parents of a child with special needs, you do what's best for your family. You know, other people are not raising your children for you and they don't understand the struggle you go through and they, that's okay. They don't have to. 
and you just, you do you. <laughs> you figure out what is best for your family and do that. If that means you're gonna put your child in this school, that school or whatever, if you're not gonna be able to attend every single service in the church because of your child with special needs, it's not the end of the world. God understands your struggle and he sees what you were going through and he's not gonna leave you. He, he gave you this gift and he's gonna help you raise this gift. We don't need to put so much pressure on ourselves to fit the norm when we're not living the norm. We have a very different situation and an exceptional situation and, and that's perfectly fine. Um, coming to terms with that, it may take time. And again, that's okay. Those feelings of this is way too hard, I can't do this. <laughs> those feelings of how am I gonna prepare this child for the future without me? Those feelings of all of that, put it before God and God will guide you. I'm still struggling with those questions. There's no answer right now, but I know God has a good and perfect plan for each one and even these children. So the, the answers will come in their time. If you have other children that are, that are typical, try to give them attention as much as you can because the special needs child takes a lot of attention. They get you know special therapy, special teachers that give them attention and speaking about the autism diagnosis, but in the other cases too. Um, I imagine there's occupational therapy and other things involved. The children who are typical, try to give them attention, try to give them their time as much as you can and don't beat yourself over it don't beat yourself up over it if it's not the ideal time or you're not able to put them in every single extracurricular activity because you're drained physically and financially helping the other child. This is your situation and, and you can, it's perfectly fine. They don't, they're not gonna fail at life because they didn't join the soccer team. <laughs> you know, that it's, it's gonna be perfectly fine. Yeah, that reminds me of uh, this saying that God gives you exactly the parents you need to have. And I was thinking God gives you exactly the sibling you need to you need to have. You know, like yes, mm -hmm. your sibling takes from your from the attention that you need, but God is not going to leave you leave you wanting or or lacking. Yes, yeah. I mean, I mean that's so true. And I think it also applies. God gives you the children you need to have. Like I I needed this as a lesson for many things. You know my patience, my ability to relate, my ability, whatever, you know, like I just needed this for so many things within me that God wanted to refine in me. So that's our interview. What do you think, Madonna? I mean, I love how she looks at her children. I love how she talks about that, you know, the way that God gave exactly the children that she needed to refine her. And I think that a lot of the things that we are given in our life they are not necessarily easy because of something that we need to uh, refine within ourselves, things that we need to, like, if we had not been put in the situation, we would have never known that we had this, you know, um, I don't want to call it like a dark spot, but you know, it's this, it's this thing that, well, honestly, yeah, we needed to shed light on it. Otherwise it would have never been fixed or never would have been improved. Um, and so I really like her perspective on that. And I, I mean, God really bless her with, with the situation that she's dealing with, but I think she does so gracefully. I think, you know, between, you know, having to raise another child with uh, her child with a disability and having to balance that, I mean, that takes a lot of patience. Having to understand the school system and having to advocate that is a lot. Having to, um, you know, listen, like invite behavioral therapists and, and occupational therapists and all these other people into your home, like, like that can be difficult, but 
other people's blessings and prayers and us learning more about this, we can be of help. So I definitely learned a lot from her interview and I really appreciate her, you know, talking with you about this. And I feel like we could really hear her struggle with trying to balance. She actually has three children. So trying to balance her, uh, her daughter's, you know, autism along with her two neurotypical children and feeling, you know, those feelings again, that we heard from Donna as well of, am I doing enough for the other kid? Am I doing enough for the other kid? And so we were so blessed that Shoy, whose sister has Down syndrome, his sister, Rebecca has Down syndrome. Bishoy agreed to do an interview with me as well. And so we were able to hear from him, his perspective and God bless him. He sounds like he grew up to be just fine. So I want to tell Donna and other parents that the other child, the other children are going to grow up to be just fine. Your, your love and your attention, even when it feels like it's not enough is enough. And I, I hope that we, you can all hear that in my interview with Bishoy. So let's take a listen. Hi, Bishoy. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, Laura, it's great to be with you. So Vishoy, I understand that you have a sister with Down syndrome. That is correct. Is she older or younger than you? She's younger than me by uh, four years. So that would make her about how old right now? So she's 27. Um, She'll turn 28 actually in April. Okay, awesome. And can you tell us a little bit about Down syndrome for those of us who are not familiar or who don't know? So Down syndrome is, uh, it's a disorder of the um, chromosome. It's called trisomy 21, I think is the technical term. And it it creates an extra chromosome. I think it's the 21st. uh, And really, that's kind of all I know about the the, um, syndrome. The science portion of it? Yeah, yeah. Well, what was it like growing up with your sister? It was, it was definitely challenging, uh, especially coming from uh, an Egyptian family. I think there's not really a lot of resources to help uh, families and parents uh, who have that, especially coming from Egypt. Um, so thankfully, though, we, we came here and um, while it was still a challenge, it was definitely much better in terms of the support that she was able to have. And there were a lot of resources available available to her um definitely in school they have a separate um class system or a separate uh, type of education special education for for those with disabilities so um overall i would say it was it was a little bit of a challenge but you know i I consider her name's rebecca i consider her to be a blessing while it's been tough at times i probably wouldn't trade it you know for the world well tell me about how you related to her let's say when you were much younger. So when both of you were elementary age, how did you relate? Did you understand there was something different about your sister? How did that? I think it was only later uh, in life, maybe in my early teens that I like realized, you know, she, she, there's a difference there. She's not like normal kids. Um, I think growing up when we were younger, um, I, I have a middle sister too, uh, Lisa. She's um, you know, we kind of, uh, us three, we kind of, as young kids, we just, you know, play like normal kids. We had a pretty normal childhood. We didn't really, you know, I don't think there was a lot of difference between us and just, you know, three regular siblings who, you know, fought and, uh, you know, just interacted normally. So I don't, I don't think there was a huge difference uh, between us in, in that respect, early on, at least. I think it was only later, um, 
you know, in our teen years that we kind of, we realized Rebecca was special. She was different. So I thought it was really interesting. You know, we're hearing from Beshoy that it wasn't until his early teens, really, that that difference became more apparent. Yeah. And I, I'm, if anything, I find that encouraging, you know, because uh, how lucky that they are able to interact and uh, what a blessing that like, it didn't hinder them at all from, you know, playing like, they're growing up and that's their normal. So there's nothing, again, there's nothing to compare it to. There's nothing for them to sit there and say like, I wish, and I didn't. And I like, how could I, they don't have that. And I think Bishoy is kind of saying the same thing. They didn't really think twice about it. And probably until much later when he was around a teenager that he finally started being like, Oh, I, th- I feel like stuff is different. But by then I feel like, like, that's it. You kind of already know your sister. You love her. You are, you know, it's normal for you to interact with her the way that you do. Things aren't going to really change much by then. So that's, if anything, encouraging. It shows how much we as adults overthink everything. Like we, we have to make everything into a thing, but for them, like you said, it's just, this is family and this is my normal family. There's no, there's no complication to it. Love is, love is like that. A lot of the parents that I interviewed we're expressing a kind of resignation and guilt that their typical children were getting less attention from them and less time than their atypical or special needs child. So did you feel, did you go through times where you felt jealous or you felt like you weren't getting enough focus? Maybe expand a little on that. I think my other sister probably might've felt that way. I was the oldest and I'm the only boy. So I think I probably got a little bit more attention uh, than than the girls. So I, I don't feel like I did. And also, too, I kind of, being the older brother, I was protective of both of them. So, so I, didn't, I don't think I felt that way. I think maybe Lisa, who's my young, uh, the middle, middle one, she might have felt that way a little bit, but I, I, I don't think I did. That's good, because I think that parents need to be reassured sometimes that, you know, it's not... It just feels so big when you're when you're dealing with your children, like trying to be fair to them, but also give them each what they need. It's like a very big stressor, I would say, for them. Yeah. And I think my parents did a pretty good job giving us equal attention and loving us equally, though maybe my my other sister might disagree. But I think they were really intentional in in, you know, caring for Rebecca and her special needs, but also giving us um, me and Lisa you know, the same amount of love and support and, you know, just caring for us as, as kids. So I, I think they did a pretty good job. Yeah. Are there ways that you feel that your family struggled in having Rebecca as part of your family? Um, that's a good question. I think they struggled only in the sense that this was a very new experience for them. And I don't think, you know, I don't think this is something a parent grows up or, you know, expects to happen. So I don't think they're prepared for it. And, you know, add on top of that, the fact of coming to another country, you know, kind of starting from scratch and not really knowing anything and having to kind of build a life, uh, you know, from scratch from the very beginning. And then adding on top of that, you have a child who has, a you know, special needs. So I think really the only struggle is just kind of, uh, being in such a new experience and, and having to uh, learn on the fly and um, adapt to a really 
two challenges, you know, growing up in a, in a place that's foreign to you, and then also having a child that you, you have to care for and, and pay special needs to. So I think that was really, that's probably the, the only way I would frame any challenges growing up uh, with Rebecca. You know, I, I will say that, you know, she's pretty independent. Um, she cares for herself. She's pretty active. Um, you know, she, she feeds herself. She doesn't, nobody has to feed her or anything. You know, she does pretty much everything by herself. So, you know, we're, we're pretty thankful that, you know, I, I know other parents and other families, they have uh, children and siblings with much more severe and, and, and disabilities that are a lot more care intensive. So we're pretty thankful that we didn't, you know, Rebecca's pretty independent. She doesn't really have to have a lot of, you know, uh, care that's around the clock. So other than just kind of adjusting to, to that, uh, you know, and I, I don't, I don't think it's been too much of a challenge. So I have to say, I think it's kind of a testament to how awesome Bishoy's parents are that he is thinking of it in this way. And that for him, yes, there were challenges, but he never felt them acutely. I think that, I mean, round of applause for Bishoy's parents. <laughs> You know, it's funny because when he was saying like, uh, I felt like I was fine, but maybe my sister Lisa feels differently. I kind of want to talk to Lisa because I'm curious if the differences that he felt were more about or the differences she felt were more about him being a boy and she's a girl in an Egyptian household. And those of you who are not familiar, typically a boy that grows up in an Egyptian household has more freedom than a girl would. (laughs) It's not fair, but that is the fact that that happens. So I'm curious if that's more, that has more to do with it than, you know, uh, his sister, his youngest sister being special needs. But yeah, I mean, I, (laughs) I think it's cute that they all, um, you know, obviously love each other and their youngest sister wasn't at all like a, a hindrance to them in any way. Um, and I think obviously the situations are very different between different types of special needs. He said it himself, she's pretty independent and capable. So uh, obviously that, you know, um, the amount of attention required is very different there. But again, it appears to be their normal. So that that's a positive thing for sure. For many people, when they first think of disability, Down syndrome comes to mind. To hear that this disability that we're all so scared of, the child is fine. The child is self-sufficient. Like, wow, we put so much emphasis on the wrong thing in life. Like, we really, we are really clueless to God's blessings, unfortunately. And I feel like it's incredible. Oh, this is the Down syndrome that everyone's so scared of, like that everyone's so frightened of, that everyone's trying so hard to avoid. You know, Rebecca sounds wonderful. She sounds like a wonderful human being. Well, that's the thing, Laura. I think like we've touched on this a few times. It really, it just comes down to our fear of something that we don't know, you know? Um, And he said it himself, like, obviously his parents were not prepared for that. And we've said before, like in Egypt, uh, disabilities are not really something that are paid attention to or um, not many resources for. So obviously, even if they were like, even if they had Rebecca here, um, they don't have much experience with it. So they're kind of thrown into this and it can be difficult, but they've managed and you learn, you learn like you do with any of our children about what is right and what is wrong and how to help and, you know, what's, what's beneficial and what's not. Um, and it seems like the siblings go on that journey too. They get to learn all of that too. And it's fine. It's fine for them. Uh, I did have a parent say it's only it's 
it's really about the same as having any child. And maybe it's a little bit more of a struggle just because like you said, there's a learning curve involved of like a new, new things to learn, new ways to, new strategies to learn, I would say. Yeah. I think being a parent, you know, my, my sister, Lisa, she's uh, a parent. She has two young kids. And I think just being a parent on your own, just that single fact is, is hard because you're learning how to raise a human being. So that's in and of itself is a challenge. And then you add in the twist or you add in the added uh, curveball of having a child with, with the special needs and a disability that, you know, that's really, really difficult. And that's a, that's a huge challenge. So. I love how he describes it as a curveball because even with a curveball, you can still hit it out of the park. <laughs> I feel like that's really nice to think of it that way. You know, it's not, it's not a burden. If we can stop using that word, <laughs> uh, it's just a curveball. You hit it out of the park anyway, you know? For sure. A lot of way that we deal with stuff really is highly dependent on our perspective of it. You know, it could, it could be something that really puts a challenge in your life. And uh, without a doubt, it comes with challenges, but so does everything, you know? Um, and we're either going to, you know, ask God for help and put him in charge and, you know, keep trucking through, or we're going to sit there and, um, stand in front of the mountain and cry about there being a mountain, you know, there's many things that there's many ways we could deal with it for sure. So, um, it appears that his parents, you know, called out to God and then kept moving forward. <laughs> yeah. What would you say some of the, the blessings have been having Rebecca in, in your life, or maybe some of the lessons you've learned by having her as part of your family? Um, well, there's, there's one blessing that I was thinking about, uh, so my sister, uh, I don't know if you know, she's married to uh, Marcus Wahaba. He's a deacon in, uh, in Orlando. And my sister actually met him because we were going to a convention for, for special needs children. And we were going as a family. And that's where Lisa met him. And I'm really thankful for that because having him in our lives, he's, he's a wonderful guy. I love him. He's like a brother to me. And that, that right there is probably one of the biggest blessings that we've had. And that wouldn't have happened if, you know, we didn't go to that convention, if it weren't for Rebecca, really. So that's, that's just one that I, I think about a lot um, because he's, he's a great person and I'm, I'm really happy, happy to have him in my life. So I want to pause here for a second, Madonna, and just make sure that everyone uh, hears a little bit about the convention that he's talking about going to. So Bishoy is talking about the ARM convention the Archangel Raphael Ministry, which is a program of the Southern Diocese for uh, individuals and families with special needs. It generally takes place in the summer. And of course, last year with COVID, things were different. I don't know what this year will look like, but you can look it up at CopticAngel.org. That's CopticAngel.org. And God willing this year, um, it'll be put on again, but it's a wonderful ministry providing um, fun and entertainment and uh, interactions and special speakers and all of that stuff so that people can, uh, families who have children with special needs can take, uh, take the time to really grow together as a family and to connect and to feel heard and to be surrounded by people who can give, you know, uh, real advice or advice that comes born out of experience and expertise. I love that they, I love that our church even has that because this is a Coptic uh, thing, right? It's by, you said by the Southern Diocese. So I love that they even took the time to highlight and uh, 
put together something like that because I'm sure it's a really helpful resource to a lot of parents out there. And it can help with um, those feelings of isolations that a lot of people say that they feel when they have a child with a special needs diagnosis. Um, that not just that within America, you're not alone, but within the Coptic community, you are not alone, which can feel even harder than just being out in like the general public. Um, also, Re Rebecca has definitely made us more patient. I think that that's definitely a uh, um, something that having a, a child with, with special needs, it, it's definitely going to make you more patient as a, as a person. Um, it, it makes you more compassionate. You know, I, I have a really soft spot in my heart for, for other people who have disabilities or families that have that. Um, and it's, it's made me more, um, it's just kind of opened my eyes a little bit more to people who are less fortunate than us. You know, we take some of the things that we have in our lives uh, for granted, you know, the idea that, um, my mind and my cognitive abilities are fully functional. Uh, I have all four limbs. You know, that's something that we just assume that we'll have. Um, but not many people, there, there are people who don't have that. And that's just, you know, a blessing that you have to just be cognizant of and, and just be thankful for. So she's definitely made us um, more thankful, uh, more compassionate, more patient, um, you know, added some virtues to us, to our family that I don't think we would have had without her. Yeah. And what, what advice would you give to maybe the, like the wider Coptic community for how to serve and approach and be supportive and, and even befriend um, families with children with special needs Excuse me. and, and children with special needs? Like how do we break that initial barrier or, or become more helpful? So, um, I'm not a sociologist, but I think that with the Coptic community, there's a stigma associated with with people with disabilities, and you know, they're almost looked at as if they've been like cursed or God is punishing them for something. Um, I think we need to get rid of that. I think we need to just really change our perspective on um, on these these children and these people that have disabilities. Um, they're not they're definitely not a curse. They're a blessing. And um, if we kind of change the way we think and just not see the negative of, Oh, this is going to be a difficult life for me and for them and for me caring for them, but see this as uh, an opportunity to, to grow in virtue and, and a way to, I, I don't know how to say, um, just really look on the bright side of, of the situation and see this as a chance to, to grow in love and, and to, to love someone who's, who's less fortunate and who doesn't have the same abilities as other kids. Um, and then if we just, I think if we just change our perspective on, on who they are and, and, you know, their role in, in the lives of, of the community, I think that in and of itself will go a, lot, a long way into, um, you know, developing good care for them and, and really making them uh, part of the community and showing them love instead of kind of looking at them as, oh, you know, this is maybe because of uh, a mistake that I made or God is punishing me or this is a trial or, or tribulation. I think if we don't, if we look at it that way, then that's, that's a really negative attitude. But if we look at it as, okay, this is a challenge, but uh, you know, this is a blessing from God and I'm going to see the positive in it and I'm going to use this to grow. I think that'll really help our relationship with them too. And then, you know, it'll be more integrated. I think, I don't, I don't know if that makes sense, but 
that's it's kind of the way I see it. It's about a mindset of how we look at the at these kids. Yeah, the idea that if we change the the thoughts around children with disabilities or around their families, then hopefully, God willing, our actions will follow this new mindset that you have to start at the root of it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like we like for example, I think if you know some some attitudes that are prevailing are you know these kids should be kind of separated from the rest of the church community and have their own, you know, um, their own, I guess, Sunday school, their own kind of space. But if we look at it, them as, you know, they're part of our community, they're, they're just like, you know, my kids um, that are, you know, have been born without any disabilities, then I think that's a better way of, of integrating them. So I want to say, that it's really interesting, Bishoy brings up the idea of integrated Sunday school, which Donna also talked about last week, that when Chris is in the normal Sunday school class with kids his own age, even if it might be a little bit um, unusual or uncomfortable, or there's a little bit of noise at first, that quickly the children and the teacher adapt and are able to uh, embrace the child with whatever their needs are. And I think Bishoy is making the same argument that if you integrate the, these children into our community, everyone actually benefits more. As, as, as Donna called it, Donna called it the, the free, friendly education. Uh, you know, and it becomes an opportunity to grow in virtue from an, an earlier age. I don't think there's a single parent out there that's like, oh, I hope I have a child with a disability, right? As a matter of fact, we, we kind of do the opposite, which is what Bishoy was alluding to. Um, and, and everyone says, you know, after last week's episode, a lot of people, you know, uh, messaged me and they were commenting, I could never do what Donna does. But that is not the truth because she, before, got, before she got into that, uh, you know, situation, did not think that she was going to do something like that. Bishoy's parents, I'm sure, were the same way. Frida, I'm sure, was the same way. Um, you don't know until you do it. And I think um, it's kind of the same idea with, he was mentioning Sunday school teachers, you know, they... I'm sure it can be a scary thought to us as Sunday school teachers to have somebody in the classroom that isn't going to raise their hand or isn't going to uh, participate the way that we planned, isn't going to be able to do the craft or whatever the situation may be. And you think, I don't know what to do and I don't know how. Um, I don't think that there is much to it except for trying and figuring it out. And you can always enlist the help of the parents and of siblings and um, of other people and other volunteers. I think that there is a lot of room for growth in that in our church. And I think he makes a great point that um, you think you can't, but they can, and they did. So you also can, and you will, you just have to try it for sure. And what a powerful lesson, if you're the Sunday school servant, what a powerful lesson to the other kids in the class that you are able to be kind and gentle and patient. And you are accepting of this person who is who has some disability or some issue that they're working through, this kind of love that you show is a lesson and a model to the kids that are, that you're teaching a bigger lesson, I would argue, than telling them again about the five loaves and the two fish. It's, it's a right. bigger lesson. It's a real lesson. And I think we've kind of all learned from uh, the pandemic this year, like, you know, unexpected inconveniences slash life turning upside down events can be really challenging, but there are benefits and there are blessings to be had through living through these things. I'm not, I don't want to speak generally because I know a lot of people had a very difficult time with it, but 
a majority of the people that I've heard from or spoke to have said like, yeah, it was tough, but there's so many lessons and there's so many blessings and there's so many things that I learned and I now know to prioritize. There are things that are important that I didn't know were important before or that I was putting on the back burner, but I see now need to be up front. Um, and I think we can say that with any challenge. And I think that God chooses wisely with what challenges he allows for our lives and what we can handle and what, you know, not to say, not to say that typical thing, like God doesn't give us more than he can handle. Actually, he does. He absolutely gives us more than we can handle. But for the purpose of refining us, like Frida said, um, going to him and letting him take control and to know that the burden is not alone on us. And I think that's the benefit of having a community that understands more about special needs is that we can be there for each other, which I think kind of has to do with what Bishwe is going to talk about next. I'm sure that growing up, you saw maybe Rebecca go through some challenges, making friends, or that you were there when you saw people successfully become friends with her. If let's say, I, you know, our parents that are listening, they want to, they want their children to not be afraid and to be, you know, able to befriend children with disabilities around them. Do you have any advice for how we can begin to broach that topic with our kids or how we can um, encourage those kinds of friendships? Um, yeah, I would say that looking back on Rebecca's personal experiences, um, people in the community have been very loving to her and very kind to her. And I think it's because they treat her like a normal human being. They don't, see her as as very different from everybody else um and i think because of that she's able to make friends with with pretty much everybody everybody knows her in church they all love her and she loves everybody and i think that's that's why people look at her and even you know you know it's it's easy for an adult to do that um but when kids young kids they you know serve her and they they are befriend her and are loving to her in sunday school that is um that's a huge component so i would say you know, to, to kids uh, or to parents who have kids who don't have disabilities to teach them that, you know, kids with disabilities, they're just like you and I, they need love, they need support, and they need friends. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I would say that. I love that. I think that's a really great perspective on it. Is there anything else, Bashor, that you feel like maybe a question I should have asked and I didn't ask or something that you really want to say that you want to share? Um. I don't know. I think, I think we covered most everything. Um, I think I, I want to reiterate again that Rebecca's she's a huge blessing. And I think, you know, if, if you were to ask me, you know, if you could have her be normal, you know, would you do that? And that's a tough question that I struggle with. You know, I think like, Oh, you know, what if she was, um, you know, just like me or just like Lisa, and that's, it's a very hard question because, you know, on the one hand, you know, she'd have a more, you know, so to speak, normal life, but we wouldn't have a lot of the kind of intangible blessings that we would have, you know, we would have that we have gotten, you know, having her in our lives. Like I, I wouldn't have Marcus as a brother-in-law, Lisa wouldn't have met him, you know, that that's one like tangible thing, but I wouldn't, I, I think I would be a different person without her. Um, so I think really, again, it goes back to the perspective that you have and the mentality that you have around um, children with disabilities. If you, if you see them as a, as a burden and as a trial, then I think honestly, your life is going to be terrible and you're, it's, it's just going to be a struggle because the lens that you view them at in is going to just be negative. But if you see them as a, as a blessing, I think, you know, you're, you're going to be much happier. And, and I'll also say that for my 
my parents, my, my mom and dad, they have never once um, given any, any indication that, you know, they wish that things were different. My mom, she, she's, she's like a saint. She has uh, so much patience and love for, for, you know, obviously for Rebecca, but for all of us. And she's very thankful for her and she, you know, prays for her. So I think, again, it's, it's really about the perspective that you have um, for, for, the, for the special needs children. I think that's really interesting. One of the moms that I interviewed earlier today was saying, you know, if her son who is, you know, has severe disabilities, is nonverbal on a feeding tube in a wheelchair, she was saying if he was neurotypical and active and everything, he would be a nightmare. He would be (laughs) like (laughs) the only thing keeping him from tearing everything apart, (laughs) you know, is, is this um, condition that he's in. And she, you know, the idea I think that she's getting at is that she wants us all to appreciate the person and love the person that's in front of us, not this imaginary expectation of what they could have been or what would have been. I think that's what I hear you saying as well. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Like Rebecca, she's perfect for who she is. And, you know, although it is a challenge, you know, I'll admit it, you know, at times it it hasn't been easy, but you know, I, I, I think I would not change who she is at all for, for any reason, you know, whatsoever, even if it means her having a, so to speak, more, more normal life, it's, it's made, she's made me a better person and and I'm very grateful for her. So. Normal is a little overrated sometimes. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Normal is relative. Normal is relative. I like that. Awesome. Yeah. I think that's it for me. Uh, Unless again, unless there's anything else, thank you so much uh, for joining me. Oh, no problem. Thank you for having me. Laura. I appreciate it. I love that after all that, he wouldn't change a thing. That was the takeaway. I wouldn't change a thing. I've had tangible and intangible blessings from that. And I think that um, that speaks for itself. You know, uh, you know, we talked like there's a lot of worries about having siblings and what do we do with the siblings that are typical. But I think the takeaway here is, is that they are loved still. They feel that love from their parents and they don't feel like they missed out. They feel like, um, you know, things may have gotten challenging, but what sibling relationship does not get challenging at times? I can't think of a single one. Um, and on that, I think we also have, uh, you know, Laura, I understand you also spoke with Christina Saad, who is a school psychologist, right, in Sacramento, California. Um, and I'm familiar with her from our Coptic dad and mom parenting community, and I've always enjoyed what she has to say in her comments in the group. So um, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so I was able to talk to Christina and get some of some more details about the school perspective and from a psychologist's perspective, what kind of advice she can give us, what kind of advice and support she can give to parents too, to help them work through um, these situations. So let's listen. Christina, welcome to the podcast. You are a school psychologist in Sacramento, and you were telling me you work primarily with children with disabilities, correct? Yes. So I work for a county office of education. Primarily, I work with students with various disabilities. So we have our students with moderate to severe disabilities. So those kids, um, sometimes they are medically fragile. They, uh, most of them actually have some uh, level of cerebral palsy. They're typically uh, have uh, multiple medical conditions that basically, you know, hinder their progress in a typical general education setting. 
Uh, we also work with students who have, you know, invisible uh, disabilities. And what I mean by invisible is that kids with uh, mental health disorders that impact their performance in school. So ADHD, autism, oppositional defiant disorder, conduct disorder, those types of, of conditions. And those kids get uh, obviously a different um, setting if they're in a different classroom and we provide them with mental health support, behavioral support, as well as specialized instruction. I also work with a regular school campus and I also do assessments to determine if a student has a learning disability um, and if they also require special education services to uh, meet the demands of their classroom. So I do want to pause here for a second and just make sure that everyone's aware because maybe some newer immigrants are listening or or might not be aware. People might not be aware that there is something called the Americans with Disabilities Act, which requires the government to care for the people who have uh, special needs just as they would a typical person. So, for example, in schools, public schools are by law required to accommodate children with disabilities. And so that's where. Christina comes in, that's where her work begins, in trying to create those accommodations that make it possible for those children to be educated in whatever capacity, again, going back to like occupational therapy or behavior therapy or whatever it is, they are to be educated by the government just as any other child would be. So what advice do you have for families who maybe just got a diagnosis of some kind of special need? I would say that the news is, is going to be hard to take. And I want to acknowledge and let, let parents know that it's okay to go through a grieving period. And I know we all think, oh, well, you know, it wasn't a death, like I didn't experience a death. But when a parent receives a diagnosis, you know, whether it be autism, whether it be, you know, developmental delays, anything like that what they experience, the feelings, the thoughts, all the emotions is akin to experiencing a death because what you're experiencing is all of the expectations for your child and their future are now gone, really, especially if it's a pretty severe diagnosis. You know, to some extent, if, if a parent gets a diagnosis of a, of a learning disability, they're go depending on what their expectations were for that child. And especially like in our community, we have extremely high expectations for our kids to let them know that there are, there are very successful people out there who, you know, have learning disabilities, but have been able to um, cope and learn strategies to uh, be able to, you know, have a career and, and do very well in life. We're hearing that same conversation about the, the failed expectations or the unmet ex expectations. And it's interesting that, you know, receiving that diagnosis is akin to experiencing a death because it's a death of an idea. And that for some can be a really big blow. And like she said, the news can be very hard to take, but it sounds like, you know, just from the fact that her job exists, that there is a lot of help out there. And if you, if you know where to go and you know what to ask for. And I think that's something I'm looking forward to in this interview is hearing more about um, what to do next after you receive this diagnosis, which I think she's going to talk about a little bit. 
what about families who are struggling with their kids in the school system? What kind of advice or insight can you give them into how it's all going to work or how it all works? I think the important thing is, is that you stay connected with the district and especially the, your, your children's teachers and whoever the administrators are, because your child, if your child is struggling, but you refuse to work with the school, that's going to make things much harder. I guess maybe, I don't know if this is like a Pollyannish type of uh, mentality, but most teachers that I've worked with want to help their kids. Like they want to help their students. And if they realize that their student is struggling, they will do everything they can to help them. So it's really important that parents set up meetings, you know, don't wait for the school to contact you. As soon as you see, you know, there's grade slipping, there's some, you know, homework missing, you know, most, most parents have access to online uh, accounts to show, you know, how their child is doing in school, what grades they've received so far in assignments. You know, if you start to see that your child is slipping, contact the school, contact the teacher, you know, email, make phone calls. So I like that Christina's bringing up just that maybe the more milder, like learning disabilities and things like that, maybe for more severe or more apparent disabilities, you can see it early, you know, right away when you're going into the school system, you know, like your kid is already categorized as having this situation or that situation. But here she's saying, if at some point the grades start slipping or things start changing, it's not, it's a good idea to go and talk to the teacher and to see if there is something else going on. There's an underlying issue, uh, for example, like dyslexia. And Christina described to me in our interview, uh, a mom she knows who really, although she was new from Egypt and all of that, who really went above and beyond to try to advocate for her child. So let's listen um, to what Christina says about this mom. She made sure every year that the teachers and the principal knew her name. (laughs) And she would be on campus all the time meeting with teachers, meeting with the principal. She came here, she didn't, you know, her English wasn't that great, but, you know, she didn't allow that to stop her. She didn't allow that to, to create a barrier between her and the school. I know that's very, actually, that's a, that's a major issue we have in, in schools today is there's a language barrier between parents and, and school. And so she made sure that she would go to the school, but she was always respectful. She was always you know, kind, and, and she would even bring, like, Betlela with her to <laughs> meetings, and, like, <laughs> and, like, she really tried to, like, almost get them on her side. She, she was great at it. I, <laughs> this really brings up uh, fond, or maybe not so fond memories of growing up in my household, and my dad would go to all of our open houses at the beginning of the year, and he would have a stack of business cards, And he would give every single one of my teachers a business card and he would highlight his phone number and like the fax and like the email and all that stuff. And he would say, if anything goes wrong, you contact me right away. You know, and he would tell them like, tell me, let me know as soon as possible. Um, And at the time that was horrifying for me, but let me tell you that open line of communication between teachers and him really held me accountable and helped push me. Uh, I think better. Obviously, I hated it, right? But it was good. It was a good thing for me. And uh, a lot of that is also probably micromanaging. But in this, 
In this situation with a child with a disability or with special needs, they cannot advocate for themselves. They cannot, um, in, in a lot of situations, those executive functioning tasks of knowing when a test is coming or how to study or things like that are, are beyond them. And so being able to have that um, open communication with a teacher, it is for the child's benefit. And, uh, you know, just like we said at the beginning, there is, there's like teachers out there that they all they want to do is help your child. And so if they happen to mention that something is wrong, that is not an attack on your parenting. That is not an attack on your child, that it is not a, you know, we think your child is incapable. It's, I know your child is capable of more. Let's see what we can do to help them get there. Um, and so I really appreciate that advice of just setting up those phone calls and those meetings and um, getting in there with the teachers because it is collaborative for sure. So going back towards maybe the, the psychology portion, what are some ways parents can support their children with disabilities from a psychological standpoint? Um, I think the biggest thing that I can tell parents is don't, I guess, to make sure that they aren't, that their expectations aren't over the top um, and that, that the school will somehow like wave a magic wand and their child will be completely fine and not have any kind of disability in a year or less. <laughs> um, I've, I've had to break a lot of parents' hearts because of that. And I think it's a journey. I think it's a long uh, journey that parents go through with their children because when they're little, you, you think, oh, well, maybe this is just temporary. Maybe this is, you know, they'll, they'll catch up eventually. But disabilities, depending on how severe they are, that's a lifelong struggle. The schools are great because they will, you know, come through and teach amazing strategies to, so that their child can meet their, their potential, right? And I think that's the thing is that parents need to sort of be, have real world expectations, but at the same time, don't try to do too much for your child or coddle your child or, you know, you kind of have to have this balance. And, you know, especially for kids who have like mild to moderate disabilities, I would say they're, them failing a little bit is actually a good thing because in a lot of ways they can actually um, learn from those failures. There's a really good book called Grit. I think the author's last name is Duckworth. And um, grit is just this idea that failure is really just an opportunity. You know, if, if a child is, is struggling with their learning disability, it's okay for them to, to try and, and keep working towards a goal um, because eventually they'll get it, especially if they're working hard and they're working with um, instructors who will help them. I know that this is not on the same uh, scale, but I remember like specifically one time I went over to a friend's house and she has a two year, she had a two year old son and her son was sitting on a chair playing on it. And the chair had like a little bit of an open back and he put his head kind of through the back <laughs> to where he got stuck and he starts crying and screaming. And my first thing is I'm going to rush over to him and help him get out of this chair. So I'm like running over there and she's like, no, 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 no don't help him. He got in it. Give him a second. And I'm like, but he's crying. So what does she do? She walks over to him. She sits next to him. She doesn't leave him alone in the struggle. And she goes, I need you to calm down, take a moment and think, 
how can you get out of this chair? And so he starts relaxing. And as soon as he starts relaxing, he turns his head to the side and gets his head out of the chair. She did not leave him in the struggle. She did not leave him alone, but she also didn't fix the problem for him. And that was a huge learning moment for me that children need those opportunities, just like Christina said, in order to figure out how to resolve their own conflicts. It, it's heartbreaking for us as parents to watch them struggle, but it is for their benefit for them to learn how, um, how to solve their own problems. Um, and I think, you know, I like this framework of it being the same with children with disabilities. You know, they are still capable of quite a bit, but we have to give them the opportunity to meet their potential. So I really appreciate that. What's some advice you can give to other families, particularly in our Coptic community? for you know, embracing and supporting families that have children with disabilities? Having realistic, realistic expectations and doing your research. And, and I mean, when I mean by research, like actually not YouTube videos or anything like that, but actually like look at published work, peer reviewed articles. There's a lot of resources out there, local and, and national. I belong, or I was <laughs> um, a member of the National Association of School Psychologists, um, NASP, and they have a great website to look at for more information. So knowledge is key. I mean, these children, while yes, they, they're gonna struggle in school, they, have, they likely have other talents too, you know? And, and I know we think like school is everything, especially in our culture, but, <clears throat> You know, I've met kids with disabilities who, I mean, some of them are great artists, some of them are fantastic athletes, some of them sing like angels, like we have to look at the whole child. It's important that we, that parents kind of remember that their child isn't just, you know, their grades or what they got on their progress report, things like that. It's that they are a child of God, that they um, have all of these wonderful talents and skills and they have great, I'm sure they have, some of them have great personalities. They might be comedians. You never know, right? In that sense, they're like every other kid, right? Yeah. So it's, it's important to remember that. So then I asked Christina if there was anything else that she felt like we needed to know. I really think her answer to this is very important from a school psychologist's perspective. So let's listen to what she has to say. I would say that if a parent is feeling they're working with their district or their school and the school is not providing the type of intervention or service that their child needs, that they need to make sure that they're advocating for their child. And if that means getting a lawyer or advocate involved, <laughs> Um, there's nothing wrong with that. It happens all the time in the United States. There are districts that struggle with, with funding, with providing teachers the skills uh, needed to work with students with special needs. So, but that's not your fault. It's important that, that parents, you know, it, you know, once they've already tried to work with the district, tried to work with the teachers and the staff to take that step if they need to, because this is their child you know, in the end. So, but give, give the district a chance. That's, <laughs> that's what I'll say. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Christina, for joining me.
Thank you. I appreciate it. Definitely a big thank you to Christina for offering all of that really helpful insight. And um, I guess I never really paid attention to the fact that maybe you come to a point where you might need a lawyer to get involved because people are not doing their job or not doing, not providing the services they should. Um, so thank you for that. And we have kind of come to the conclusion now of our two-part disability episodes. They were enlightening in so many ways. So I hope that you guys enjoyed them. And a big thank you to all those that we have interviewed during these two episodes, um, to Donna, to Frida, to Bishoy, to Christina, to all of you listening. And we just want to encourage you today that if you have a child with a disability, we love you. We do. We appreciate everything that you do. And if we come to you and we ask questions, it's just from our desire to understand and possibly be helpful to you in any way that we can. And if you are someone who doesn't necessarily have personal experience with disabilities, but you do see someone in your community who does, make an effort to include them, reach out to them in any way you feel called, um, talk to your children about them, and have them get familiar with people with disabilities. And with all that being said, thank you so much for joining us today on this week's episode of Raising Up Cops. Raising Up Cops is a podcast hosted by Laura Michael and Madonna Lowendi. None of the views expressed during this recording are the official stance of the Coptic Church or its hierarchy. These are purely our personal opinions, collected experiences, and organic discussions on selected topics. If you'd like to reach out with any questions or comments, please email raisingupcops at gmail.com or post on the Coptic Dad and Mom Parenting Community on Facebook.